G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today I was completely honoured to have Associate Professor Virginia Stoffel on the podcast. Uh, her work, her textbook has been absolutely seminal in uh, my mental health understanding as well as now my mental health teaching uh, and I definitely wanted to have a chat with her about the, the textbook itself, um, some of the, the things that I really love about it, her journey into and through OT, uh, all of the various different projects that she's done. I believe she's the third AOTA president that I've had on the podcast now, so I'm aiming to try and collect the whole set, it seems. Uh, and then where she sees, uh, I guess occupation and, and mental health moving into the future and some of the things that may impact uh, those those aspects. So I am still currently absolutely just mind blown uh, by, by Dr. Stoffel. I really hope you guys enjoy this chat because I am absolutely mind blown. You said usually OT finds you, say, being the, the um, uh, young lady who was, um, I was a library goer. Um, from the time I was about four years old, I started to read. I'm seventh of nine, so all my sibs would sit around the kitchen table doing homework, and I wanted to do what they were doing. Um, and so I started uh, reading and going to the library to get my books. And you know, I was pretty much into chapter books right from the get-go. And um, and I used to have a librarian who literally would say, are you picking this up for your sister? And I'm like, no, it's for me. <laughs> and so then she, um, I could tell she, she didn't think I could read. So then I read her, you know, a page or two. And from that point on, she became my ally. And so she always set aside books she thought I might enjoy. Uh, and so I literally would go to the library twice a week. And by the time I was 13, I had um, made my way. I mean, I read a lot of novels, but I really got into history and biographies and stuff like that. But I kind of read everything I wanted. So I got bored and started looking in other parts of the library. And there was a, um, a section about careers. And uh, they had, in those days, vertical files, which were literally vertical files yep. that had career information in folders. And, um, and my, uh, my oldest sister was a nun. I knew I did not want to do that. Um, my second oldest sister was a nurse and I thought, well, let's look at health. Um, and so, um, as I went through the health file, I, I discovered an occupational therapy flyer and I read it and, um, and it didn't have the kind of blood and guts that I thought <laughs> I'd have. Um, it kind of had cool things, um, people working with others across ages and, and doing things that look fun and interesting and meaningful. And it was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. So when I turned 16 um, and talked to my um, high school guidance counselor, um, that person um, suggested that, you know, perhaps I might want to explore that a little bit more. And, and um, so as soon as I turned 16 and was able to get a, um, be able to get a job, um, a regular job, uh, I applied at the rehabilitation hospital that was right next to the high school that I went to as a nurse's aide. And um, they hired me and that's what paid for high school and college. Anytime I wasn't at school or doing other things, I was, I was, 
to being a nurse's aide. And it was a fantastic um, training to become an occupational therapist. Um, you know, I got to, um, you know, really the nurse's aides, they do the everyday work behind the half hour or hour session, the OT class yeah, yeah. in terms of the person to navigate their day. And, um, and so I, you know, um, had that and, and, you know, looked for a college that had the kind of program I wanted and found St. Catherine up in St. Paul, Minnesota. It, I lived in Chicago. So St. Paul was, you know, about an eight hour drive at the time. Uh, it's a little quicker now because we have higher, uh, you can drive yeah, faster, yep. but uh, it was, um, you know, it was just far enough away to be able to come home you know, for the holidays, but uh, really be off on my own. And, um, and that really is what launched, you know, my, my very first month in OT school um, as a junior, um, uh, they class ahead of us came to uh, our class and said, we need one of you to serve as a representative. And by the way, the American Occupational Therapy Conference will be held in Milwaukee um, in, a, in a, about three weeks. And so whoever gets elected will be able to go to Milwaukee and represent our program at those meetings. Um, at the time, students' voices were part of the Commission on Education, and later they developed um, their own, you know, now it's called the Association of Student Delegates, yep. but uh, or the Assembly of Student Delegates. So, um, so I raised my hand and said, I'd be willing to serve in that role, and nobody else raised their hand, and so I was, you know, in by acclamation. And, um, and of course, the, the side story is uh, that my boyfriend lived in Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> Side benefit. Right, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, he had graduated from school a couple of years ahead of me. And so um, so it was my first time being in Milwaukee for an extended time period um, at the AOTA conference. Um, he was in grad school at Marquette at the time. Um, and two years later, I came back and I've lived here ever since. Um, you know, he, he's the only guy in a, in a family um, with five sisters, but his dad started a business that then he ran for you know, the last 30 years. So, yeah, so he's been my home. Occupational therapy's been my home. I feel like you putting your hand up to represent students slash therapists way, way back then was a, uh, a very telling sign of things to come. Yes. <laughs> right yes. from the very well, start. Well, and, and little did I know then how, how significant that would be as a part of my life. Um, I, I do have to say that the faculty at St. Kate's were incredible. Um, they were basically six women. Um, um, some were um, um, Sister Miriam um, Joseph Cummings was part of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Karen DeLay who helped um, run St. Catherine. Uh, but, um, but all of them were dedicated occupational therapists to the point where I thought, I'm not sure I want to be like them in that I want to have more life balance. I want to be married, have a family, have things other than occupational therapy, but I do want OT to be important. Mm. And truly that's exactly what I've been able to do um, is, you know, I married someone early in life who knew, who knew the goals that I had. Um, and together, you know, we decided, okay, when do we start that family? You know, for us, it was about four and a half years after we got married. Um, we're now, you know, uh, delighted that all three of our sons uh, have found their life partners and, um, and the oldest who've been married the longest um, have two grandkids for Aww. us. So Lucy, who's 
who's six and Oliver who's one. So um, yeah, so they, they've, they've all married, you know, they, um, two just in the last year. So uh, very recent. And, um, and so um, when Eric, our second son was three weeks old, he came with me because by then I was um, the fieldwork representative on the Commission on Education and serving as the secretary of the commission. And we had meetings in Washington, D.C. So he came with me at three weeks. And, you know, in between nursing and naps, he just got you know, passed around the table while we met uh, for two days. Um, and, um, and so the kids have always been able to kind of roll in and roll out of, um, of you know, all those leadership opportunities across time. That's awesome. He didn't end up becoming an OT or anything. Was That wasn't like a sign of things to come for him or anything like that? No. no. <laughs> right. No. So when you but, oh, but I, sorry, good go no, ahead. No, you're right. You, you go. I I was just thinking, you know, when I um, you know, when I think about what that journey has been like, um, I'm grateful that I did have a contrast between what I wanted and what I saw these women had who were my faculty leaders. Um, because, um, because I'm not sure I would have been as conscious and intentional to make sure that it didn't override everything, because uh, it would be easy to have that be kind of the one overriding factor. And, and I'm grateful it's been an absolutely important part of that, but in, you know, in constellation with other really important pieces. Uh, from the get-go, they were my models. Uh, sister, uh, Miriam Joseph Cummings, sister, uh, who later became known as uh, Genevieve. Uh, so depending on when you knew her, the nuns <laughs> went through transition. Yep. Uh, but she uh, she sat as the parliamentarian for the board and the representative assembly. Um, Sally Ryan um, was uh, actually the first OT assistant to be honored with the roster of honor which is equivalent um, in our country to the roster of fellows, uh, the designation uh, for people who've really made a difference in the profession. Yeah. But she also sat, was the first to sit on the board of directors of AOTA. Oh, wow. And they happened to be doing that when I was their student. So, so I just saw what they did and thought, okay, well, that's what you do. <laughs> you into this profession, you, you know, you contribute and you move into all those roles. And, and so to me, that seemed like a natural progression. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think what you're saying, that's like really important. I, I've spoken to a lot of people and even from my own personal experience, uh, OT, I know a lot of people go, oh, OT, it's who you are kind of thing. But it, it is, it is just a part of your life. It's not, I don't think it, healthy for it to be like absolutely everything um you know there aren't too many other jobs or professions that would be that all-encompassing that it takes over every other part of your life but i've spoken to quite a few people who mostly in hindsight have gone oh yeah probably did go a bit overboard with it kind of thing and you know wish i'd put more focus into family or put more focus into you know something else hobbies or whatever it is so i think that that balance side of things and actually having something outside of work is kind of important for a lot of people yes yeah i know for myself yeah uh, obviously during the time while our children were 
growing and living with us full time, um, they were, you know, the other big um, uh, piece. Um, now we're at a point where um, we are able to spend that much more time with our extended family. Um, so um, I have a 95 year old mother-in-law who lives, you know, 20 minutes away and she's still living in the home that she raised her oh, wow. six children in. Um, so, yeah, so we're the closest um, geographically to her. And so, you know, are able to, uh, you know, be a part of her life and make sure she's in a good place. And that's wonderful. You know, I, um, you know, you never know who's going to be around and for how long. Uh, so we, yeah, we feel really blessed that our kids have been able to grow up with, uh, with um, some grandparents. Yeah. Yeah, my dad, 20 years ago, my father-in-law about 15 years ago but yeah the fact that they still have uh, grandma is is wonderful yeah, and awesome. wonderful for our, our grandchildren yeah that's fantastic so yeah and then yeah i don't know if um if you uh if you look at some of the pictures aota had during the years i was president you also would see me not only with my um, my family but also my sisters okay. uh, who at my last uh, my last uh, presidential address uh, came up on stage and did what we do in our family tradition, which is um, if it's a big deal, we write a song and we sing it. <laughs> so at the end of my address, you know, instead of just my husband carrying me some flowers or bringing the grandbaby along, to sing. Uh, the sisters came up and they sang and, and people actually hung out and listened to it. <laughs> Uh, and, um, and it was fun because they had done it the night before. So I thought that was it, you know, so I didn't expect that that was going to happen, but the title of my presentation was come home to family. Yep. Um, and, um, and so it's, it's no doubt, you know, that my original family experience has very much influenced the way that I, I view the relationships we have in our profession with one another it's very family-like um yeah we've uh, we have generations that we learn from uh, we have traditions we carry out in our profession that are much like families you know do um and and i also think that there are times where people sometimes feel estranged from the profession mm. uh it may be because uh, of, of challenging experiences they had that maybe they felt, you know, less prepared for or overwhelmed by and a need to kind of pull back and then at some point decide if they want to return. Of course, being a female dominated profession, we know that a lot of our, um, our peers um, take family time uh, and may or may not return. In fact, my, my class, there were 40 of us. Uh, uh, yeah, I think 40, somewhere between 36 and 40 um, in my graduating yep. class. And at our 20-year at our reunion, we took a series of pictures. We said, okay, let's take it of the whole group. Um, now, how many of you are still working as an OT? And then the group got smaller. And then how many of you have continuously worked as an occupational therapist the since time. we graduated? So 20 years in, there was only two of us standing. Oh, wow. I was shocked. Wow. Uh, I really was, you know, uh, because I didn't think I was doing anything unusual. Uh, I just thought, you know, we worked really hard to get into this program. You know, we, uh, we spread our wings. We, you know, we've done stuff. Um, but it's fun for me to see how those friends who may not get a paycheck as an OT are influencing their communities with their OT background. Um, in in many many other ways so uh, so that's you know 
it's it's kind of it's a different way to think about the workforce yeah, yeah. and workforce development. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's something that I've been sort of talking to my students about in the last year or two is more that like, and it probably fits well with the whole balance thing, but more that OTs, it's just a, it's a toolkit. It's not like, it's not a, it's not an identity. I mean, you can identify as an OT if you want, but think of it more as a toolkit. And, you know, especially now where a lot of the positions uh, even the the areas that our graduates are going into, you know, they didn't even exist when I finished fifteen years ago, whenever it was. The, they've it's new, it's branching out. the The areas that we're going into as a profession is new and varied. So, but that doesn't start with someone writing a job description. That starts with someone applying a skill set. And then them going, oh, okay, what profession are you? Because you're actually really good at this. And then it it happens like that. So that doesn't happen unless we're looking at, you know, our training as, okay, I've got this skill set. I've got this toolkit as opposed to I'm an OT and I'm amazing kind of thing. You should hire me. And and I think that helps with the whole balance thing because you're not viewing, I don't know, I, I, I see people get very kind of modular where like this is OT life, this is home life. And I think that's where people run into issues. (laughs) Right. Well, and and so, so I think the way you describe it as a toolkit is a, is a really useful um, way to think about that because they are skills that you can use in your Mm -hmm. personal life um, across your lifespan uh, with other people and in any role that you happen to be in. But, but the other side of that, that I think actually is the part that for me stands out more strongly um, is that it's a calling. Yep. So thinking of coming to this profession as a calling um, and, and that's what I felt like I experienced as that 13 year old standing in the library in the health section of the careers um, is, um, is that this, I mean, it looks so much more interesting than you know, some of these um, medical, you know, kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, uh, other options, but, uh, but that the working with people and the, uh, the focus on doing an everyday life and health and well-being. Um, and, and of course we didn't ha- use the term then as much as we do now, but the full participation in everyday life. I mean, that, um, being having the background that we have and the tools that we have with the calling mm. towards how can I improve whatever's happening here for the greatest possible good. Um, and so that calling for me was both to become an occupational therapist, but also to step forward as a leader. Uh, because I, uh, yeah, I, um, I, I try to ask my students to really be conscious of uh, what they can contribute as an occupational therapist, but then also what does it take to step forward as a leader and to do that in an intentional yeah. kind of way. Um, so I think that's something that, yeah, we've also been where the, like our, our fourth year students, cause we do it, we're a bachelor's, uh, like an undergrad, um, bachelor yes. of OT, uh, where I work and, uh, like our fourth years, there's a, an, an, I think it's an elective module or it might be part of the compulsory module on you know, leadership and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the biggest things that generally comes from that is often that 
students when they think about leadership think more about like they relate that to management as opposed to like you can you yes. can have leadership like in in your entry level new grad position you can there's leadership opportunities that you can take um which i think is something that uh, even well, all therapists need to sort of get their head around is leadership isn't something that it's it's not a a job it's not a job it's not a role right. it's not a position it's something that you know you I don't know how to describe it now i've lost my words Well, it's something that you do along with yeah. whatever else you're doing, yeah. right? And I, it doesn't have to be a formal leadership role. It can be an informal one. And, and so, so when we, uh, during this last decade, uh, I've done a lot of leadership development training with AOTA um, under uh, several programs that they initiated um, back in the late, um, around 2008, the Representative Assembly agreed to um, have us uh, look um, at strategies to really build people's leadership capacity. And, um, and for me, um, that was the year after I finished my PhD in leadership yep. for the advancement of learning and service. So the timing was, um, was really awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, the AOTA president at the time was, uh, and actually he and I uh, had met each other um, the summer between our junior and senior year in college. Uh, we were both OT students assigned to the same fieldwork site oh, nice. in Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> and she was doing physical rehab and I was um, in the in, inpatient um, lock psychiatric unit. Uh, and uh, But we lived in the same um, nursing dorm connected to the hospital. And, um, and so at the time, um, back in 2008, Penny was AOTA president. And um, we felt like there was um, somewhat of a, of a um, I think they termed it a crisis in leadership. Uh, you know, basically, um, there were very few people stepping forward, and it seemed like people just traded positions. Yeah, so same people, same yep, table. Yep. Moved, moved chairs. And that wasn't at all the picture of what we wanted, especially in terms of thinking about sustainable paths to the future. Uh, and so, uh, and so uh, basically, I, I was willing to chair a committee, an ad hoc committee for AOTA, and we developed a couple proposals. And, um, and probably the two that have had the longest lasting influence, um, one was simply developing a way for people to say, I'd like to help. Yeah, I'd like to be mm -hmm. involved. I'd like to step up as a leader. And that was what we called the COOL system, uh, Coordinated Online Opportunities for Leadership. Um, and so basically it was a it was a part of the AOTA website where people could see what's out there, but more importantly, um, they could put in data about themselves and their willingness to serve. Um, and then anytime there was a new committee or group or project where they needed people with certain kinds of skill sets, they would be able to go to this database um, and, and um, ask people, you know, is this a project you'd be willing to, uh, to do? So yeah, it was a cool. way to help connect people with projects. Um, and although, um, although it's probably at the end of its life, um, yeah, because there are, you know, technology and everything else is so different today. Yeah. We can connect. Um, 
but also we're in a new um, round of development for leadership uh, as well at AOTA. And I know a number of that will be um, announced at our meetings upcoming in March. But um, uh, pretty much from 2009 to, through 2018, uh, we uh, brought in a cohort of um, two different groups. Uh, first, what we called emerging leaders. And they were people um, somewhere in the first five years of entering the profession, but who definitely had um, um, an inclination towards wanting to serve and wanting to serve as a leader and wanting to really develop their capacity. And, um, and so um, some years um, we had as many as 120 applicants for 15 positions. Yeah, I've, I've, that were I have heard of that. And I know it was like hotly contested. I remember seeing a few people on, yeah. in the online realm. Yeah. You know, I applied for this yes. and these people got in and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, well, okay. We don't have anything like that yeah. here. So it was interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah. And essentially what um, what we did was really invest in um, the um, early development of these emerging leaders um, and connected them with a mentor, uh, um, a seasoned uh, practitioner who had um, – um, was willing to serve and um, and and essentially they agreed to a twelve month uh, mentorship uh, and then um, beyond that it was up to them you know what kind of relationship yep. that might be um, just yesterday one of those first emerging leaders um, contacted me yesterday with a picture of of uh, the baby that she uh, was blessed with um, through adoption oh, yeah nice. she got notified four days before um, um, the baby was born on, on Christmas Eve. Aww. And, um, and now she's home with that baby. But uh, yeah, but in the interim, she went on from serving in the student um, association, uh, the association of student delegates to uh, uh, being the student who represented student input on the board um, to uh, being the, um, person who um, actually I think is she today yeah I think today she's heading up the volunteer and leadership development committee for AFTA so um, you know we have opened so many doors yeah. and made that path um, hopefully at the right time in people's lives as opposed to I I always joke that you know so so the other thing about my my six mentors at St. Kate's is they were such um, uh, they were so um, connected to the profession that that was it was kind of like they accepted that life uh, yeah, leadership yeah. and uh, so you know kind of entered you know, uh, kind of leaders where you felt like yeah this was a path and and then you could make small incremental step towards those higher levels of leadership and and I think that model is um, is out of date today yeah. um, we we're attracting people to our profession at, at different phases in their lives. Yeah, you know, they aren't the eighteen-year-olds like me. Yeah, you know, who entered college with with this as the goal, um, yeah. right? Exactly. So why wouldn't we take their yeah you know, take their uh, what they know, what they do, what they can contribute, and have that be you know at the forefront? So the emerging leader program helped us do that. But then people were like, "Wait a minute, I'm six years out, or I'm ten years out, or I'm twenty years yeah. out, and I want to be." in that program so then we developed a, a middle manager executive um, kind of management stream and now we're really looking at what are the programs we can lay out that are much more open for all but also uh, uh, are across people's lifetime uh, to really look at leadership development as part of your professional development just as you would any other aspect of yeah, yeah. professional development 
Yeah, I think that's. So it sounds like you're having like really good retention of the people going through those programs, staying into those, uh, you know, serving and and leadership roles within the association as well. And what we've really actually uh, tried to do even more is to say, take those leaderships not within just AOTA, but within your workplace, within your community, yep. uh, across, you know, within the interprofessional community. Uh, because um, uh, because I do think that uh, making sure that you serve the profession, but also uh, are the voice of the profession to the external world. That that's yeah. If we really want to bring our our work to public health, to community and population health, uh, we have to yeah be in in very different positions. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to go back. So one of the reasons I know you is your extremely i would say seminal textbook on mental health which is Mm -hmm. something that i've had for quite a while it's part of the course that i teach uh it's pretty much my go-to for anything mental health textbook related um how did you how did you find yourself in mental health? Were you always in mental health as soon as you finished, or where did your your passion obviously I mean, I'm assuming that it takes a fair bit of passion for mental health to write a textbook about it so where did that come from right well um it that came from a variety of sources um i yeah, I've always been uh, because I worked in a physical rehab hospital, um, I was really able to see what does is, what is rehab practice look like. Um, and as a nurse's aide, I spent a lot of time, much more time with the clients that were assigned to me each each day. You know, that basically that's how the nurse's aide duties go. You get so yeah, many yeah. rooms, people who live in those rooms. Um, and so I was able to get to know the real people behind whatever the injuries our, our, our um, conditions they were trying to overcome. And, um, and so I was always, I was always intrigued by the psych aspect of that uh, and how um, a person's motivation or how their, um, uh, their self-concept, their um, sense of uh, meaning and purpose in life um, moved them to overcome the physical barriers uh, that they were, you know, trying to yeah. deal with. Uh, so then when I went to college and, and was able to study, because uh, because the course of study, um, you know, in a lot of the programs back in the 70s was, yeah, we took, we took, yeah, intro to psych, social psychology, psychopathology. I mean, we took a whole range of uh, psychology courses um, that emphasized uh, both mental health mm. as well as mental illness. Uh, and, and of course, in the occupational therapy realm, we were, you know, focused on mental illness um, for that population, um, as well as the co-occurring mental illness that can sometimes happen with other conditions. But we were also, as a part of our holistic training, focused on mental health. So so that balance uh, was something that I knew I wanted to have in, in that I um, was involved in. Um, so I, I was drawn towards um, towards mental health and substance abuse uh, from the get-go. Yep. Um, I, uh, I do have a sister who um, has, um, during the time while I was um, 
I think I was in seventh or eighth grade. Uh, she uh, did uh, need inpatient psychiatric hospitalization after a suicide attempt. And so um, I was very aware of, um, of the fact that um, if people were struggling, that there were places they could get mm. help and hopefully they could also return to everyday life. So, so basically she ended up having a year out of school um, and then she returned the following year. And during the time that that all occurred was also kind of a, a, a tough time in our family because our mom, who was 47 years old at the time, died of cancer. So we were all struggling. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and that grief process um, was something that, you know, affected all of us. Um, and so we just pulled together and helped each other and, you know, ran this big, crazy house with, you know, by then it was just uh, my sister, Betsy and I, uh, she was a sophomore in high school. I was in eighth grade. My brother, Chi was in sixth grade and my sister, Annie was like in first grade. Um, and so Betsy and I kind of ran the house, you know, with my dad, yep. um, um, who had a job where he was on the road a bunch of the time. So the older sibs who were nearby, um, uh, would, yeah, we would make, they would always, you know, be in, in touch with us. But, um, but we did a lot of, um, a lot of juggling and it worked. Um, there were certainly struggles in there, yeah, but, but, yeah. uh, so, so paying attention to mental health and mental well-being has um, kind of been almost part of my DNA yeah. um, because, you know, um, we, we, you know, as a family have uh, moved to start sharing even more family stories over time because you only know, you know, the slice yeah, of family yeah. life that you've been part of. There was a long slice before I was part of it. Um, and apparently my mom did have some um, postpartum depression. Yeah. Um, after, after actually, so there's seven girls and two boys and it was after the boys. <laughs> so we always give them a hard <laughs> yeah, time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but just knowing that, you know, that that's a part of your family and your family history, yeah. um, uh, was, it was piece of that, but, um, but also that Twin Cities was um, a place where, um, where addictions and, and um, substance abuse treatment was really uh, growing and developing in an exciting kind yep. of way. So um, in our final semester of our senior year, we were all uh, uh, given the opportunity to create a, a level one fieldwork placement at a community organization that didn't have OT and that that wasn't a pre-existing organization that's in case. So we had to go out and look for a place and go meet people and sell ourselves to, can we volunteer for you? Um, you know, this is what we'd like to do. And of course, at the end of that, we had to write a paper and then do a presentation to that organization. Um, it could have been to their staff. It could have been to their board of directors, whatever the nature of that group yep. was. So I sought out a, um, a halfway house for adolescents who um, were struggling with mental health and substance abuse and um, had been in inpatient programs, but were in a, you know, kind of a um, transition yep. process um, to return to family and community, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and I absolutely loved it. Um, there was, uh, there was just so much, you know, I mean, we didn't know what we do today about recovery and recovery yeah, concepts yeah. as are clearly articulated as they are today. But, um, but basically these were groups trying to help kids get back on their feet and, uh, really look to the future, create a different kind of lifestyle. Um, you know, 
cope with issues that arise that are a natural part of, of you know, especially transition as an adolescent, um, helping them um, as they worked at, on relationships and recognizing um, relationships that put them at risk um, and relationships that um, provided them with stable, strong foundation. You know, even beginning to uncover their values uh, that might lead to what's next and um and what are my skills and am i worth that uh because of course you know we were we were working with people that we would today use principles of trauma-informed practice um recovery oriented and um and really helping build a life of meaning so it was all the granular stuff that we heard that uh, I just thought when I come to Milwaukee um, and I um, finish my field placements, um, what I hope is that I can find a job um, in a place where I can make a difference uh, because I felt comfortable. They really appreciated uh, the way I worked with people. And, um, and so that was my hope. And of course, 1977, um, just like 1997, that you know, I think that the profession sometimes has these dips, at least in the U.S., you know, where um, you know, policies change uh, or you know, markets change. And um, so basically, there was no OT jobs when I went looking. Um, and I was from outside of Wisconsin, so I wasn't considered an insider. I went to a school outside of Wisconsin. I grew up in Illinois, yeah, but I was married to this guy in Milwaukee, so yeah. that was my market. Um, so I first accepted a job in a long-term care setting, um, and it was um, director of activities. So it was an occupational therapy that was delivered by an out, outside um, um, service, a contract service. Um, but it was a 250-bed facility that had um, a whole range of abilities, um, primarily for older adults, but also for people with um, more um, severe disabilities who needed to have residential care, including a, um, a 50-bed unit for people with intellectual disabilities, um, um, some of whom were able to go into like sheltered workshop during the day, others who were on the unit. And so essentially, I revamped their activity program and um, and really looked at um, they had great programming for little cells yep. within there, but not for the for all the residents. Um, and I got the staff more involved. I got the community more involved. I got the families more involved in really creating kind of a whole menu of options uh, for what people could do. And um, and. Um, and that was, you know, a minute. So I went from like the first month I, I was hired. I started the Monday after Thanksgiving. And um, and uh, I don't know how it is in your part of the world, but the Monday after for us, so the end of November until Christmas, yep. you have a lot of community groups who want to come in and sing Christmas carols uh, and bring punch and cookies for all these diabetic older adults. <laughs> so, yeah. It's coming um, from a good place, so, but yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, director activities was the connector to all these outside groups. So I, at first I'm like, wait a minute, I went to college for this. Um, but it was, it was a way to get to know these groups and who they were and maybe how we could redirect them into other things. Um, so that, so by, by Valentine's day, two months later, um, what we did was we had a, um, a, uh, an event um, that was um, uh, a, uh, a senior prom. Um, and 
senior, yep. yeah, you know, meaning the folks that live there. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, um, and we and we um, also had it um, as a fundraiser. So we called it um, the the rock and roll senior prom. Where they were going to live. Um, this was their their uh, place to live through their the end of their life, and so we wanted it to be a place that they could contribute to and be a part of and make decisions about. So, uh, but we couldn't do it just within the building. We wanted people from all yeah, over. Yeah. So, so, so I was able to kind of help shift that that programming to meet the needs of all. Um, and then after about eight months, I felt like I don't need to do this. Nah. Someone else can run this program. So we hired a certified OT assistant who who stayed for 14 years thereafter and did an amazing job. Um, and right, and so that gave me the opportunity to then look at the market a year later to say, okay, what's out there? And there was this teeny little ad in the Sunday newspaper, which is used to be that's where you'd look for jobs, right? Um, and it was um, it was a pilot project at um, a private. Um, nonprofit um, mental health and substance abuse um, um, program, and they were looking for an occupational therapist. Nice. So um, I'm 22. You know, I'm this many months out of school, uh, but I am ready to make a life change. And um, so I think I had to go through six interviews. Oh wow! Uh, because again, this was their pilot project. Everything else was going to happen based on yeah, this. Yeah. And um, I did get that job. Uh, it was it was a dream job because um, there actually were two. There was an occupational therapist and an occupational therapy assistant who had been employed. Um, the occupational therapist was a woman who had come through treatment herself. And it, as part of her recovery process, came back to the hospital and say, you really need more. Um, and what you need is what occupational therapy can bring you. So she really paved the way for that for that pilot project to happen. Yep. Um, and the other kind of met our standards, our joint commission standards for offering kind of program um, activity programming during people's downtime. If they're in an inpatient unit, they need to have yeah access yeah, yeah. to meaningful do, occupations yeah. and so she kind of did the evening and weekend program yeah. um and um and so um working with those two i then was the first to actually become a, an official part of the treatment team uh, working alongside of the mental health and aoda counselors um and then really bringing yeah um uh, the level of occupational therapy services to where you know the, it would be what we would all recognize as part of our process. So an assessment, um, goal setting, you know, treatment planning. Um, I I developed programs both on the inpatient side as well as the outpatient side. We also had a, um, uh, we called it DePaul Sertoma Industries, which was a, um, a, uh, place for people to return to employment, especially if their substance use had, had left them with um, some brain damage yep. or other, you know, more challenging more um, parts of that recovery. Right. And then we also had a longer term um, residential um, center that was at a, like a different campus. So if people needed to have um, a step back into the community, it was one of those step 
step in. So, so, you know, we went from the three of us to um, about 22 of us wow. in, in the next three yeah, years. And, um, and I was, yeah, yeah about, gosh, about a year and a half in, the woman who was my, uh, who was, um, you know, the director, who was the woman in recovery, um, she, she was like, I'm so thrilled with what's happening, but I, this is not for me. Yep. Uh, so she moved on. And, and then at age 23 and a half, I was hired as the, the director. chair of all of this. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and it was during that time that I decided that I also wanted to get my master's degree. And that's what um, uh, moved me towards a master's degree in educational psychology counseling. Um, so, um, so from the perspective of my employer, I was then, a um, yeah, I had, um, two professions yeah, yeah. that I could help services out of. And, um, and so after a, um, a period of time where they wanted to open outpatient satellite clinics, um, I was then hired as a clinic director, um, for a satellite clinic. So I, I literally drove up and down the streets of a, a segment of Milwaukee to to find a clinic location, I hired the staff. I developed the programs, and and uh, and so I was always. Um, but with with that job, what was nice was was that I was fifty percent clinical and fifty percent um, management and leadership. Uh, so I was able to um, you know use you know kind of both sets of skills. Um, and during that time, is yeah. So I was working on my master's degree. I also started teaching as an ad hoc instructor. So first guest lecture, um, obviously a field work, uh, always built in field work and, and um, level two field work, which is what we call our full-time uh, field work. Um, and where students are with us for 12 weeks. And, um, and so I was able to um, be engaged with OT education from that end. But St. Kate's had given me the um, opportunity as a senior student. Uh, I was really critical of our mental health courses. Uh, and so basically they said, well, pick a unit and redesign it and teach it. And so I did that as an independent study and really got a flavor for what that was like. And of course, it was much harder than I thought it was. <laughs> it was a humbling, yeah, humbling experience. But I also felt like this is something I definitely want to do in the future. Yeah, yeah. So part of the for getting my master's degree was so that I could be um, eligible to even apply for a faculty role. At the time, we considered a master's terminal degree in all of our programs were baccalaureate, primarily with a few um, master's programs in the country. Um, but you could get your master's degree in, in any associated yeah. area um, and, and be you know, considered having those credentials. So, um, so I started teaching as an ad hoc instructor at the time that um, I was um, running that outpatient clinic and um, and teaching as an ad hoc teaching as an ad hoc running the clinic. And and going to school, uh, yeah, with babies in my arms. Uh, yeah, right. too much. And by the too time much free friends, time. Yeah, obviously, it was it was right. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that that thing about it's not going to be the only yeah, thing yeah. meant. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, again, you marry the right person. You've got family around you. Actually, we were so blessed. Um, one of my sister in laws, Sharon, uh, she literally came home to Milwaukee when our oldest son was born so that she could be there to be part of his life. And, um, and she's, you know, his godmother and, and today is still very much, you know, important. Um, but having other people like that yeah, yeah. who could 
yeah, help with all of those, um, you know, um, different priorities uh, made all that possible. So then ultimately, um, what I did was, you know, I, I switched my full time job from clinic to teaching. Yep. Um, for the first uh, couple of years, I maintained my clinical practice at about 10 hours a week uh, because I had been working with some people over time. And um, um, by then I had, yeah, I was working not only with groups and individuals, but also couples and families. Yep. Um, and, um, and so when, when they would phase out their treatment is when I would cut back on my clinical hours. And then I was blessed with uh, being part of a research team at the university that um, got funding in 1990 to, um, to be part of, um, at the time, it was the largest um, National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse clinical trial um, at 26 sites across the United States. Milwaukee was one. And so my colleague in social welfare, who was the principal investigator, um, at our site, uh, asked me um, as a junior faculty member to um, join the research team. And so I was actually a research therapist where I was able to be in the clinic yeah. doing the randomized clinical trial for 25% of my faculty job. Um, and that was oh. so incredible, right? Um, because you know, I got trained, um, I, the, the, uh, the approach in that study was, um, it was called project match and, um, M-A-T-C-H was an acronym for matching alcohol heterogeneity to, um, M-A-T, uh, to, um, heterogeneity, matching alcohol treatment to client heterogeneity. M-A-T-C-H. They wanted to know for whom is what approach the best. That was essentially the match hypothesis. Um, And and so we um, randomly assigned people to um, a 12-step intervention, a a coping skills, cognitive behavioral intervention, or a motivational intervention Mm -hmm. um, based on motivational interviewing, but called uh, motivational enhancement therapy. So I was actually uh, one of the coping skills um, cognitive behavior therapists and, um, and actually wrote up uh, some of my experience through the lens of an occupational therapist back in, um, I think it was published in 92 or 94, and it was just a case study um, that was published in AJOT at the time. Yep. Uh, but, um, but essentially what we found was that all three approaches were efficacious um, and that um, the, the actual match theory wasn't um, as potent because they all were yeah, efficacious. Yeah. Um, but at the time, so much of what was uh, being offered was only one approach um, that offered people the opportunity to really consider for me, which of these approaches might be best. Um, and, um, and so, because two of them were, um, were once a week, 12 week uh, kinds of um, programs. Yep. Uh, one, the motivational program was actually only four sessions across the 12 weeks. Uh, and, um, and was very, you know, um, at the time was a very innovative way to really look at how do we activate people um, towards their own health and well-being. And, um, and so, uh, so it's interesting. Um, this and meeting with um, MD Anderson, which is one of the major cancer treatment centers here in the U.S. 
um, and I'll be training their rehab staff in motivational interviewing, um, the uh, basis of that motivational enhancement approach. Um, and it's it's amazing to me that it's 30 years yeah. later. Yeah, that, yeah, when I first got exposed to this in the way that we got exposed, you know, it's, it's, um, it still is um, important and, uh, and applied much more broadly and not considered the tool of any one profession, but rather one that we should all be able to um, actually implement at a facility level as opposed yeah, yeah. to just you know, practitioner by yep. practitioner. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. There's so much you just said that either is very aligned with how I view things or things that I've tried to do. Uh, similarly, I coming into my faculty role a couple of years ago uh, wasn't. Well, I was brought in because I think uh, they needed more mental health input. I was a mental health clinician for you know, the the ten years before. Uh, I went into this role and uh, I pretty much the, uh, I guess the, the per- well, when I first started, I was the only person on staff that had mental health experience. So it was kind of like, here, it's up to you, sort this out. Uh, but the one of the subjects that I teach in second semester is probably the main mental health content that they get throughout the course. Uh, and that was my pet peeve i guess at the start was this needs fixing and like you said before like uh, earlier um one of the things that i changed about it and i wanted to change about it was the just explicit focus on mental illness so yeah yeah and that's it it's all about epidemiology of this and blah 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 blah. and i'm like that that's like the tiniest little bit of what i ever did in my career like i Mm -hmm could probably list off the number of times I ever looked at that stuff. Um, so, but I mean, I get it. It's important and they need to know that uh, for different reasons, but I wanted to bring in a lot more of the, or I refer to it as mental well-being stuff and, or we look at it as mental health in a well population. Cause I think that's, that's the, I guess, mental health type content that they're going to be able to take into any clinical situation. So they're not just looking at severe and enduring mental illness, but it's it's about, you know, people that aren't coping at work or they're in a physical rehab ward. Um, I did a, a podcast with Eric Johnson, who um, I'm sure yes. everyone seems to know Eric. He's quite popular, mm-hmm. but one of the things he said that I've – I don't think I'll ever forget it is that there's no health without mental health. And I was like, that yeah. is just so true. <laughs> so, right. uh, and of course, yeah, that, that phrase goes back to a world health organization uh, piece. That's about 30 or 40 years old. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, no, there's no health without mental yeah. health. Uh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think the more that we truly take that to the masses, yeah. you know, and really understand, and that um, yeah, there's a tipping point that can make that a very powerful part of you know, what we do. And the other thing is like, so for that particular subject, your textbook is our prescribed textbook for that one. Uh, and I think I, the, the reason I like that textbook above a lot of the others is it's the way it's broken down speaks to me. <laughs> 
So even the, like the, essentially the whole textbook is kind of broken down using the PEO and it just yeah. makes sense because yeah. that's, that's how we're teaching people to view the world. So right. why isn't how we teach content broken into those same sections? And I think that's, for me, that's probably one of the, the best things about it. And it just makes it so much easier to, I guess, uh, structure the content that we're trying to teach them, but also for them to get their head around it because we've already taught them the concept of person, environment, occupation, and then here's how that fits in this setting or in this, you know, when we're looking with this population or it, it makes sense to me and I really, really like that. Is that something that like viewing uh, mental health in that way, is that something that is just, been with you from the get-go or is that something that sort of developed and reframed over time or well so uh, so I started teaching in um, I think 1981 and um, and and although my the first courses I taught were things like occupational therapy media and um, intro to OT um, I, I moved into the mental health courses when that opening uh, occurred. Yeah. And, um, and so had, you know, for, had almost like 15, 18 years of working with the existing mental health resources. Um, and, uh, and, and I, in the mid nineties, I served as the mental health special intersection chair for AOTA's uh, process and and during that time um, got to know quite a number of of people who were um, really you know kind of the movers and shakers at the time in mental health and um, and one of the people that I got to know really well was Katana Brown who is the primary author of the text um, and who you might want to invite someday I can help connect you with Katana because I to think me. she would be a great yeah, yeah. Um, but Tina, um, Tina was uh, a longtime faculty member at, um, at Kansas University Medical Center. Um, and Tina has also um, worked with Winnie Dunn and is the person who developed the adolescent adult um, sensory profile. Uh, yep. Yeah, Winnie did work with kids and then Tina, um, in part because of her interest in um, those issues among the people she was serving, people with serious mental health issues um, in, in the program she was uh, helping to um, do her research around and, and helps helping to staff. Mm -hmm. And so um, Tana and I, um, Tana became the mental health SIS chair after me. And I moved into the role of being the SIS um, coordinator. So I coordinated all the SISs and Tana was the mental health chair. So we got to be with each other, you know, for that three three-year time period, uh, that much more. And um, so it was during that, um, around the, yeah, um, those experiences where we really connected and wanted to do some things together that uh, we were at an AOTA conference where we, uh, we were individually approached by book publishers saying, um, we really want to have kind of a gold standard mental health text. And we, and we don't feel like we have that in the, in the U.S. publishing world yet. Um, and so would you consider, and I had been approached a couple other times, but I just never felt like I was at a position where I could actually say yes to that. You know, again, that family, other parts of your life stuff. Uh, right, right. But, um, but also, you know, to where you feel like you have the confidence to do that. 
Um, and the vision to do that, uh, because, you know, to create what I love about what you said, as you gave me feedback about the text is that that was the heart and soul of what Tina and I did together was we created this, um, this, you know, obviously in the book world, it's a prospectus yeah, yeah. as the term, it, but we created that, um, in a way where we basically decided we wanted to, uh, do something very different than what had been available. And that we wanted to have the clarity of the message about what are we here for? It's a vision for participation. So even the title of the book really, and we chose to keep the title of the book for the second edition because we still feel like um, that vision needs to be central. Yeah. You know, what is it that matters to that person? What is their vision for participation? Um, and how can we help them you know, get there um, and sustain that um, over time? So, um, so we knew we wanted that to be a piece. We knew we wanted it to be... Um, based on the lived experience of people who would guide us as experts in their everyday life um, so that we wanted to put a face um, on a picture of uh, people who are involved in, in you know transforming their lives and moving towards well-being and health and recovery um, and so we knew we wanted that to be a feature. Um, it wasn't until we were actually into, um, uh, so we, we figured by that time, we had been in clinical practice a pretty long time. So we knew a lot of people because, you know, having people tell their stories about their life and, and their condition and their struggles um, is, um, you know, the stigma associated with that, the prejudice, the discrimination that they might experience if they um, unfortunately, those are still prevalent today, but we've made a lot of headway, mm. um, but we still have a long way to go. No, uh, but we knew we wanted to, um, to create a place where people's voice would be, um, be valued and respected and, um, and where they would recognize that that this text is different because your presence is here, your footprint is here. Um, we do this work because of the experiences that you have. So, um, so we knew we wanted to have that first person lived experience piece there. Um, we want, we were thinking, well, maybe we can just ask them because we, we knew we wanted it to have more illustrations, you know, cause there's so much text yeah, heavy yeah. stuff that was out um, with almost no illustrations except for some kind of, you know, the OT in a workshop, um, you know, making a birdhouse, <laughs> I, I, like, like whatever, yeah, yeah. you know, something. Um, so, um, so we're like, yeah, but we wanted about real occupations in everyday life and natural context and, and all the rest. So, um, so, so we just, uh, we just, yeah, when they told us they wanted a gold standard text, we took that to heart and thought, okay, if we were magicians and we could create a product, what would it look like? Um, and that's what we did. Yeah, we went about kind of de developing that vision and, and, and we found a publisher, F.A. Davis, who very much was in a position to support us 
in that journey. Um, and so, yeah, the first edition took far longer than we expected. The second edition took far longer than we expected. But part of it was, you know, was again, that juggling thing um, about, you know, other parts of your life sometimes getting in the way of moving it forward as quickly as possible. But the other part was the, the inclusion piece. We knew we wanted to have lots of authors. We wanted to have people who um, maybe had some history of writing, but also people who didn't. Um, occupational therapists from all over the world, not just from the U.S. Um, we wanted to, um, you know, to really create kind of this community of people that were contributing to the text, um, both people with lived experience and their family members, um, occupational therapists, and, and other practitioners, because there are yeah, other practitioners uh, who co-author uh, a number of the chapters in the book. Um, or who have little featured yep. uh, pieces or boxes in there. Um, we wanted it to be evidence-based, obviously. You know, um, that uh, we wanted to have those uh, those you know um, connections around um, evident, the evidence. Um, we um, we wanted uh, people to be able to uh, find resources uh, that could be beyond what the text offered, and so you know, lots of links and other kinds of ways to help them. Um, we, you know, we, uh, we, because the book became so big, you know, I think what the first edition was 55, yeah, 55 to 58 chapters. Um, that's a tome. <laughs> uh, but we felt like to do person, environment, and occupation mm. justice, we, you know, needed um, a lot of chapters uh, because we're complex beings and, you know, and the opportunities out there are so vast. Um, so although we have always intended it for an OT audience, we also wanted it to be able to speak to anybody who would pick up the yeah, book. Yeah. If a consumer had some interest and had some, you know, that, you know, that, that, um, you know, they might, um, um, we actually had a physician who called us about a year, um, after the book was released, the first edition, and he literally read it cover to cover. And I said to him, <laughs> I don't think I've ever met anybody yeah. who read this book. Cover to cover. Yeah, wow, that's dedication. <laughs> he was, yeah, but you know, he said, you know, I'm not an obviously, I'm not an occupational therapist. I'm a primary care physician. I have a lot of clients uh, who are struggling with um, mental health um, from you know mild to moderate to severe across their lifespan. They have all sorts of other conditions. I want to know how to work with them, and you have given me this practical insights too. How does this impact people in their everyday life, in their meaningful roles, you know, as they uh, try to connect and, and, and truly move back to participation. And so thank you for offering that vision. Um, so that was like, wow. Um, awesome. You know, we, that was not an audience yeah. we, we expected to reach. Um, and, um, and so uh, it, um, it was, uh, you know, being, Gosh, even getting what years? I think in the late '90s, I went to St. Catherine um, to go back and do a seminar for them, and uh, Mary Law was there, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, I had never met Mary before. And it was one of those things where uh, my youngest was so young that I felt guilty about going away for another trip. 
Um, and so, um, and so I decided to take the all night bus from Milwaukee to, to St. Paul uh, to get there for the 9 a.m. Uh, opening of this conference so that he went to bed and then I went to the bus depot and you know, got there. And, um, and I literally walked in from the bus and um, I, of course, because I'd been a student at St. Kate's, I knew what bathrooms I could go like take care yeah, of myself yep. and not look like the person who just slept on a bus. <laughs> uh, and um, so I did that. And then I went downstairs and Mary was there early um, and she was um, doing a, um, a two day piece on the Canadian occupational performance measure and model. Yeah. Um, so it was early, um, um, earlier in its development. And, um, and I was uh, for the first time teaching that uh, like 10 days after this conference uh, to my, to our graduate students at the time, because it was a new graduate program. Um, and so, um, and so Mary was like moving furniture. So I'm like, Oh, can I help you? And, you know, I didn't know who she was. I just saw this lady in the room that we were supposed to meet in. And so we started talking and connecting. So when I went home from that conference, Mary had us do a lot of hands-on um, activities because it was a, a group of practitioners that she wanted to actively use the tools. And, and, um, and so she sent me home with all the materials she brought. And then I later shipped them back to her in Canada. Um, so it was just like incredible. Yeah, that's unreal. Um, yeah we developed a friendship beyond just a, a collegial relationship. Uh, during my doctoral program, we were expected to have a mentor, a leader mentor. Um, so I actually had a local one. Um, uh, one of my social work colleagues and Mary uh, were my my leader mentors during my uh, my four year doctoral program from 2003 to 2007. So then, you know. Basically, Mary made herself available Monday afternoons um, um, throughout that. That's unreal. Uh, so, yeah. So, so obviously, my appreciation for PEO uh, and for the, the clarity of the simple yet complex yeah. ways that we think about our work and communicate our work to other people uh we just felt like that was just the absolute standout organizing structure um we wanted it to be clear to the practitioner like students who were learning you know how to carry out our practice um but we wanted it to be to be clear to others and to the people that we served um and we just felt like the peo and the connection with that vision for participation um uh, was going to make the book be something different. Um, and, um, and so all those features that we have been able to add and refine, you know, um, from the first to second edition, um, it's, um, it's definitely a labor of love. Um, we never expected that it would be as, um, as widely accepted, not just in the U S but also abroad. Yeah. Um, and in some cases, because mental health practice is, um, is, uh, such a big player abroad, um, we, you know, we've been able to really, uh, benefit from learning, you know, about how, um, people have taken it and used it in their part of the world as to yeah how we can try to influence that back here in the states yeah but it's um, that's the, i mean the other thing is like it's it's it seems so simple to lay it out like that and it's probably because you know i've already done the ot degree and i've been working in a i think peo 90 percent of my life anyway but yeah. it's also one of the textbooks and i think that what different for me anyway what's differentiated it from other textbooks is it's 
seems to be, from my clinical experience, super comprehensive on terms of anything that I can that I've ever mm-hmm. thought of that I want to uh, look up with regards to things that I've seen, with regards to people that I've worked with, practice areas that I've heard of. It's in there, and that's not always the case with some textbooks that I've had a look at, which I think is like uh, I. It's it's one of those things where sometimes you're kind of a little bit hesitant to like prescribe a textbook for students because you know are they ever going to use it? Whereas I've got no issue with this because I'm like I've got like my copy and all of the copies that the university's given me. Um, what I'm transitioning uh this year to the second edition so i'm i'll be doing mm-hmm. that rewrite sometime soon mm-hmm. uh but i've yeah i've got this is a textbook especially for the the students that do end up working in mental health and and mental health quite and i've learned this a lot through this podcast a percentage of like the ot workforce it seems to be a lot larger in australia than it is in the states um i'm not yeah. sure what the reasons are but there's obviously a history there somewhere but uh like we have, a lot of our graduates will end up working in mental health so especially those guys this is something that like they'll go back and look at for ages there's stuff in there there's there's uh practice areas that i've never worked in especially the sort of I've always worked in adults. So I've never worked with you know kids or adolescents and that kind of stuff. So, but seeing through the textbook like how OT and it just makes sense to me. Like I've never worked there, but I can get my head around it quite easily because it's just laid out for me. It just it suits me. That's probably a very selfish reason of prescribing it. <laughs> well, and I, I, I always appreciate when uh, so I'll be in. Interested to hear how the second edition goes for mm. you, um, because yeah, we 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 uh, did some some shifting um, and adding and, and subtracting, yep. um, but um, but what is um, always just so gratifying to me is when I get stopped by a student who says, because um, we know in today's world students aren't buying textbooks, um, they're renting them, they're borrowing them, they're trying to use online, whatever. Um, but this one student said, as soon as I graduate and get my first job, I'm buying my own copy so I can have it with me forever. So, you know, and that you know, this is one of the few textbooks where I actually read more than I was assigned. Mm. Because I was intrigued to kind of follow that path um, and to see, you know, what else was there. You know, and I, you know, I think now that we have at least like, for example, in the AOTA has AJOT, the American yeah, Journal yeah. of Occupational Therapy, it's only online. Yeah. It used to be available either or, in print yeah. or online. And then before that, it was paper only. So now you don't have... a. A, a whole uh, journal that you can hold in your hand to read beyond the articles that you're looking for. Uh, so it was fun to hear that from a young person yeah. that she was so committed that this was going to be one of her first purchases after she got her yeah, job. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so that she could have that. Yeah, yeah. Plus, like I, I've, I purchased my own copy. So if I ever do leave this job or go back to clinical work, like it comes with me because I like I like it. <laughs> it's very helpful for me. Well, uh, on a you know a personal clinical level, as opposed to you know just being able to teach with it, so I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I look forward to all future uh, editions. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Well, and you know, we were uh, we were really grateful. Um, um, Jaime Munoz, who is now the third author of the second edition, Jaime actually joined us um, towards the end of the uh, first edition because we just had so many chapters yeah. that needed their final edits and we needed a, another um, hands-on deck. And so now he's been able to help us uh, shape that much more, um, the second edition. And um, we also brought in another person, you know, who's kind of going to be behind the scenes and maybe more prominent um, that during the next round. So uh, it's one of those evolving kinds of things that, um, you know, the, the, the gold standard in the U S that was, that was uh, at the time talked about when we first started with the idea of the text was, you know, like a Willard and Spackman of, you know, and, and for, for, for a lot of us, right, Willard and Spackman was like the only text that there was around. Yeah. That's, um, what, that's what so, we had when I um, went through. Right. So um, Brown and Stoffel, you know, it, it's like, oh, it's like a Willard and Spackman. Um, and um, what's funny is um, my first daughter-in-law, um, her last name is Brown. Um, and so our kids are um, Stoffel Brown. Um, so, yeah, Brown and Stoffel, Stoffel Brown, sense. whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things I'd like to get your perspective on is is the mental well-being side of things because I think that's something that is probably less emphasized in a lot of even a lot of other like I've had the the privilege of having a look at how it's taught in a few different universities and a lot of it still is focused on I have a feeling I don't have it concrete but I have a feeling that it's the courses are being designed based on needs that are being passed up by the health service as opposed to, you know, we're, we're creating graduates to fit the health service as opposed to, you know, advance the profession with new ideas kind right. of thing. Because I don't see a lot of, in the few courses that I've had a look at, I haven't seen a lot of what I would say is mental health in a well population type content mm -hmm. do you how do you see that fitting because i think the other issue i've got is well not an issue but the other idea that i've kind of got is at the moment a lot of the mental health content is kind of compressed into one or two subjects as opposed to being integrated through the whole course right. do you have an opinion on what would be better or how you think it should be taught or like based on you know your writing in the textbook how you've envisioned it to be used and and that kind of thing mm -hmm. so so there's a couple things that i'm thinking of as you were um positioning um your question and um i think right now we are i think experiencing across the world um practitioner burnout and um, and practitioner ill being, um, it, yeah. That uh, the jobs that we take on are big. Mm. Uh, we're exposed to trauma, yeah, um, both directly as well as secondarily um, with the people that we serve or the communities that we serve, um, and um, and and the job demands don't often recognize that or take that into account in terms of best practices around workforce development and, and employee health. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so the need to um, have students start with a sense of um, when you become a practitioner, 
your own state of mental health and physical health and spiritual health and well-being in all dimensions um, will impact everything that you do. And, uh, and if you can't take care of self first, then the work that you do will be diminished. Yep. Both in, in what you offer and how you offer it and, and the outcomes that you can help to. I like, to, I like to use um, the, uh, the airplane metaphor about putting your own mask on first before you help others. Right. Yep. Yes, exactly. Um, but in this case, it's, um, it's about um, looking for good air to breathe yeah. or, I mean, it's about, you know, not just the life-saving piece, but how do I live every day in a way that recognizes that it's important for me to take responsibility for my own state of health and well-being. And that includes my mental health. Um, and so, uh, and so we, um, for example, at orientation this year, uh, we decided to bring in uh, some of the resources that we have on our campus um, that um, actually came in and talked about um, some of the um, um, issues like imposter syndrome uh, that especially in graduate programs, you know, at, at both master's and doctoral level, that students, you know, can get frozen by in certain segments of their development because they don't perceive themselves as being really um, deserving of whatever that recognition is, you know, um, that they've worked so hard for. Um, and so issues around that, um, we just felt like it was important to, to help students understand the um, the, the normal challenges of, of higher education and of um, becoming the kind of professional that you want to be um, really require you to take care of yourself in ways that you don't um, kind of dig your own hole or create yeah, yeah. some of those barriers. Uh, because we know, for example, self-stigma is probably the hardest stigma to overcome, right? Um, and it limits our ability to even respond to opportunities if we don't allow ourselves to think about ourselves meeting that opportunity and actually growing and flourishing. So, uh, so, so we decided we wanted students to, to be aware of broad mental health as, as part of their uh, entering, but also what are the programs and services available to help enhance that. Um, and, and I think we need to do even more of that um, as, we, um, as, as we move into having them complete the program and then enter the as practitioners. Mm. And that's where it's been fun to have Michelle carry out her research um, because transitions is something she's always been interested in. Um, and for us to look more deeply at what are some of the things that actually, you know, uh, we, can, we can do early on up front in the entry program that will raise students differently um, as they move into those practice settings. Um, so, so even to the point of, of uh, you know, some of the faculty, especially those of us who have, I, you know, I, I often teach in a three-hour block, and although we do take breaks, um, to, for the first five minutes, it, and even can even be as little as three minutes, to do some kind of a mindfulness, mm. um, relaxation, breathing, exercise, um, before we you know, go into whatever the next learning activity is. Um, or, yeah, I often, um, uh, I actually 
also teach a, a really intense course where they, they come in for um, sometimes, you know, a half a day or a whole day to do certain segments of that um, to make sure that we have walk and talks. Um, yeah. That, yeah. If you're breaking people into small groups, have them do that moving yeah, yeah. Um, and then come back and, you know, and create a different way to help people uh, really pay attention to that. Um this year for the first time in our, um, so we, so we've also uh, tried to disperse what used to be thought of as the main mental health courses um, in, and, and frame them in different ways. So we now have a course we call therapeutic communication and that has um, therapeutic communication. So that has um, that full range of skills from interviewing mm-hmm. Um, and therapeutic use of self, you know, we, we um, do use Renee Taylor's intentional relationship model, but I also use some of the work from um, Ivy and Ivy, which is um, intentional um, interviewing and counseling, um, because that's what was around 20 and 30 yeah, yeah. years ago. Uh, so, uh, but I, but I think their micro skills hierarchy is a really helpful um, way for students to think about their skills. Um, but with part of that, um, as a, we did as a baseline interview, uh, we had the second year students interview the first year students, just using the um, occupational profile yep. as a way to get to know each other. Um, and then um, two weeks later, they came back and they um, they used a, a tool developed by Sky Barbic. Um, Sky developed the um, personal recovery outcome measure. Okay. P-R-O-M. Um, she'd be a great person for you to have. <laughs> She's going to be the uh, breakfast speaker for the international breakfast at AOTA in Boston in a few months. And she's a Canadian um, uh, OT who, um, whose tool is a great tool. In fact, if you just Google it, it's fully available online and you can read even some, um, some consumers perspectives on a tool. Um, and, um, and it's a great way to almost take a snapshot of how am I today? And, and, and I've said to Sky, I really feel like this isn't just a, a recovery tool. This is a wellness tool. And it isn't just for people who struggle with mental health issues. It's good for anybody. Yeah. And with a couple adjustments, of course, she's, she's been able to um, apply rash analysis to the tool. And, um, and so it's 30 item organization reflects that rash analysis. But essentially, you take the tool, um, you do the scoring. Um, let's say um, that the highest possible score is a 30, yep. which means that basically you feel really good about all 30 items. Um, um, and, and of course, most humans um, fall somewhere below 30. Um, but, um, but even when you calibrate what's your score, let's say it's a 17, you go to item 17, and then you go before and after that item, and you look at all the items and the descriptors they have there. And that's where you start planning with the person for how can I take care of my health and well-being? Um, so it's a really nice tool for self-awareness, for getting that snapshot of where am I today, for seeing all 30 items, because they are all great aspirational ways for you to um, be healthy and connected with others socially and doing things that are important and meaningful. But it's um, it's got all sorts of great potential things. So of course, you know, um, what I say to the students is if you're going to use this tool with someone else, you might want to use it on yourself first. 
Yeah. So, so whenever we can say, take care of self, look at yourself, you know, and now use this with another person. Mm. Um, so then um, at the end of the semester, they took that same tool and they went um, to one of our psychosocial clubhouses, um, actually the Grand Avenue Club in Milwaukee, where I research and um and very, uh, members there were willing to meet with our students um and and do a kind of a wellness checkup um is what we called it um and use the tool and some other materials to really look at managing holiday stress and winter yeah because for us the winter months could mean we're going to be indoors yeah. for three months on end um or you know in treacherous environments that are cold and icy and yeah where lots of incidents and accidents occur yeah. Uh, and um, uh, and so uh, that uh, that turned out to be a really great uh, set of experiences for our students. And then at the closing class, uh, we talked a lot with them about so how are you going to take what you've learned here and apply it both to yourself, but also to your practice because they're going to soon be leaving for their full time field work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because we know that's a, a really stressful time for everybody. Um, being in a new environment under different conditions with lots of expectations, but also the, yeah, the, 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 um, the need to do the best they can to learn and perform um, under, you know, those conditions. So, so we've tried to kind of, you know, pull that out and really talk about how do I use this everywhere that I work, not just how do I apply mental health. I think that it sounds very much so like that model yeah, might be kind of exactly what I'm currently looking for, actually. So that's good timing. <laughs> we, we, you know, when we when we first um, started working on the book, um, what we did, we had lots of colleagues who were more than willing to share their course materials yeah. with us. So we basically, you know, sent that's out this deep. broad kind of uh, plea for would you be willing to share with us how you're currently designing your curriculum and any courses that you feel like this book could be a resource mm. for? Send your syllabi um, or some of your course assignments so that we can get this flavor for that. Um, and, you know, and I don't think we do that enough with each other as uh, faculty to faculty to really open our doors to say, come take a look, you know, um, especially because so many more of our course materials are online. Um, and so, you know, with permission, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I just feel like um, if one of the reasons I love doing uh, big projects that are federally funded is that all the materials you develop become public. Public, yeah, accessible, yeah. Publicly available, public accessible. Yeah, um, please take this and mm. use this. Um, and by the way, it'd be great if you could acknowledge us, but if you don't, we feel like it's more important for you yeah, to use yeah. these materials. That's yeah, what you're doing. So, um, so yeah, whenever we can, yeah, I just that that's kind of the way I like to approach, um, you know, the both the teaching that I do as well as the research. That's one thing. That I've, that's probably one of the biggest things I noticed moving into academia is everyone's so protective over their own stuff. Whereas right. when I was clinical, right. it was like, take it. <laughs> What have you got? We'll swap. Let's see what we what we're doing. Um, one of the things you said uh, earlier was, or just then, was uh, about essentially using the tools uh, students to use the tools on themselves, and that's something that I've always been. I think my students are probably sick of hearing me talk about it about self awareness and 
from a mental health perspective or clinical mental health perspective, I think it's super important that, you know, the clinician, the student, whoever it is, knows essentially where they're at going into the room or where they're at going into that interaction. Um, because where they're at can have a massive impact on, you know, the person that they're interviewing or the person that they're doing whatever it is with. So that's something I've definitely tried. So all of the, the different sort of little things that in, in the subject that I've just sort of redesigned are taught to the students in a way that they're doing it on themselves. So when we do things like the sensory profile and we look at sensory mod and that kind of stuff, or when we look at even like the Kawa model, or um, I also teach uh, solution-focused brief intervention, um, those mm-hmm. kind of things, they do it on themselves so they kind of get an idea of where they're at. Like they know, you know, their, how they process sensors. They know, you know, how like what their Kawa would look like at that point in time, like, and then they can apply it to other you know, other people. If you can do it on yourself, you can apply it to other people. But it also gives you that insight into where you're at. Because um, I think one of the, the important things that a lot of, and not just in mental health, a lot of people don't think about often enough is when you go into a clinical uh, situation, you go into either an, uh, an interview or an assessment or something, you are part of that person's environment and i don't Mm -hmm. think i think we often don't put ourselves into that category so when we're looking at peo you're part of that person's environment so if you're having a shitty day or you don't tolerate something in the room or blah 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 blah, any number of millions of things you are having an impact on that person's environment you are going to have an impact on them on potentially the outcome of whatever assessment you're doing so uh, that's one of the reasons I, again, like I said, my students are probably sick of hearing me harp on about self-awareness and being aware of what you're bringing to the table. Well, and, and you know, and, and I even try to model that with them, you know, so um, what does a calm presence mm. um, that's reasonable, yeah, where you really pay attention to your vocal tone, mm. your body language, uh, your eye contact, all of those things, what does that communicate? If, if you want to bring a little more energy, yeah, what is it like for you to show enthusiasm or excitement or interest or appreciation? You know, the difference between sitting back in the chair versus sitting slightly forward versus like totally, <laughs> you know, moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it totally evokes a different kind of response from the other person. And, and so you, you have to be knowledgeable about how you're, how you're showing mm-hmm. that to one another. So, so we do use videotape. It's so great today that everybody has their own video camera in yeah. their cell phone. Uh, so we can, so, so they literally videotape themselves doing those interviews so they can both see as well as hear um, what they said and how they said yep. it. And then they critique that across all these different experiences we have. Um, the, the other thing I failed to mention in that therapeutic communication course is that there's a whole um, module about, um, about group dynamics and group and designing group protocols and group leadership. So they do both uh, uh, practice on uh, designing those for each other. Um, and then also um bring that into the community and carry out um, um, some group activity sessions with um, older adults in a long-term care setting. And that is, yeah, just always um, eye-opening. Yep. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's because there's two of us who 
co-instruct that course, uh, we're able to uh, be with these smaller groups of four leaders um, in the community with them as they carry those out. And then they do a huge amount of self-reflection, group reflection, um, and then kind of making plans for, so how do I further develop my skills? And, and ultimately that becomes, yeah, the end of the semester culminating um, pieces is a portfolio that starts with that day one interview with the first year student that the way they use the occupational profile and then has all these other pieces. And then they talk about, yeah, where they see themselves today and what they feel like they need to work on as they move into that full-time field placement, which, which we think of as a process that helps them their professional, their professional beyond this semester. Um, so it's a yeah, yeah, it's kind of a way to scaffold. Yeah, you know, what have I learned? Yeah. And what do I want? It's like do? taking stock, but also almost, I guess, taking ownership of their own learning where they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really cool way of doing it. Where do you see the? This is something I was talking. Who, who did I ask? I think it was Charles Christensen. I was talking to him about this uh, a, few, a few weeks ago. Now we see, well, we are seeing a massive change in, say, the occupations that people are actually doing due to technology and that kind of stuff, and we're seeing an impact on things like attention span and the the types of jobs people actually value or not jobs but the types of occupations people value are also changing how do you see particularly i guess my interest is around the technology side of it because i can see that it's having a positive and a negative sort of impact on people's engagement you know you see people walking down the street and they're bumping into each other because they're looking at their phones and that kind of stuff how do you see the impact or what do you see the impact of the that i guess personal technology i'm kind of connected to mine almost permanently uh having on on mental health well yeah i think some of the data that's coming through uh suggests that overuse of technology leads to a lot of negative health outcomes Mm. uh be it um depression or attention related um issues um the um the uh again technology is is um I've never talked about it this way, but I was just thinking for a a brief second there. It's almost like uh, substances um, is um, if you use them, if you, first of all, do you choose to use them? Do you choose to use technology or not? Do you choose to drink, let's say, or not? Um, Is it helpful to you? Uh, How much is enough? How much is too much? Um, When does it actually become uh, something that is negatively influencing your everyday life, your well-being? When is it getting in the way of having pleasure in the moment? Um, You know, and and I think we could probably ask the same question, technology as well as alcohol use. Mm. Um, And, and, uh, you know, and and I I haven't ever put those together, so I'm kind of playing with that in my head even as I sit. But, um, but I actually think, you know, any, anything that we do in our life, uh, be it a sanctioned occupation or the dark side, you know, the occupations we look at less or understand less, less about, um, I think it's really about, um, what, what is, what is the activities that I'm engaged in that are helping me or interfering 
with what I do. So for example, my family um, for a decade um, have joked about um, the fact that uh, while I have a cell phone, um, they can't expect me to respond to any messages that they leave on that phone for a period of time. And they used to think of me as being um, like, um, like that was a bad yep. thing. And, um, and essentially what I say to them is, you know, if, if I'm at work and I'm in the middle of teaching or doing my research or reading or preparing, the last thing I want to do is be interrupted. Um, and, um, and yes, I, you know, especially when I was AOTA president, I'd have, I've had three to 700 emails every other day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I was just, you know, and so it would take me hours to go through those and decide, yeah, you know, which ones I actually had to do work on, which one were more for information only or which were garbage, yep. but I still opened every email. Yeah. You know, and I, I am a person who opens every yeah, I, I do do that. Um, unless I can clearly see it is, yeah, it is spam totally, yeah. yeah, my spam filter should have picked <laughs> it up. Uh, but um, uh, it's, um, it's one of those things where I don't want to spend a day where all I did was emails. Um, I'll, you know, and so, so figuring out how can I do that efficiently was really an important learning in my schema, right? Um, or figuring out that, okay, if you really, um, if Michelle knows that, it, you know, if, um, if she sends me a text, it's very likely that I'll, I'll respond to that sooner than I will an email and unless it happens to come through while I'm in the midst of working on yeah, email. Yeah. Um, and so, and so basically, yeah, I, I've just tried to make sure that I'm clear with myself and with other people, what are the best mechanisms for that? And I think as humans, we need to do that with each other. Um, you know, some things are acceptable at work or school and others are not. Um, so, yeah, so helping people know how does technology fit into this world where we want to be connected. Mm. But there are other times where we purposefully need to be disconnected. Um, and so I have friends, you know, we, uh, we met with a, um, a research uh, facilitator from our graduate school. And she said, um, by the way, um, I'm going to get back to you. But my next 10 days are um, I'm unplugged oh, nice. um, from everything. That's awesome. um, and, you know, she said the only thing she did was she used music. Yeah. Um, but she was unplugged from TV, from computer, from, you know, personal devices, phones, and, and all the rest. Um, and that she had friends who would knock on her door if there was an emergency. Yeah, I mean, that, that was, yeah. That was contingencies. Be, yeah. Uh, right, exactly. Um, and it's like, you know, uh, early on in my career as a practitioner, uh, um, uh, faculty member, I got to meet Dr. Csikszentmihalyi, um, Mihaly, Csikszentmihalyi flow theory. Yep. Okay. So, um, so what I asked him at that time was tell me how you can be as productive as you are with all the research and writing and presenting that you do. He kind of had this little smile and he said, um, I have a place. Um, and I forget where it was. It was in a mountainous region. Yep. It was a cabin. It had running water. It did have electricity, but it had that no internet. Yeah. <laughs> it had no, right. And he would um, spend as much time as he needed, depending on the size of the project, there, away, alone. 
Yeah, with nature. Yeah, with time for taking those breaks that get you back to everything that's not technology um, and, and have your needs met uh, to do the kind of deep thinking and creative. Um, and he would, you know, sometimes he would invite other people so they could do that creative stuff together mm. like a retreat. Uh, but he would create the retreats for himself based on what he needed to do. And, um, and people got to know that about him, you know, where you can't, yeah, you can't contact him for the next three weeks because he's on his writing retreat. And I, I sometimes think, especially as academics, that, that we need to learn how to organize our time across the 12 months so that we can build in all those different kinds of tasks that we're expected to do, but can hardly do at our best if we're at a desk in an office with all sorts of yeah, people and, and interruptions. So, so I think that the, the looking forward is um, being able to help people calibrate yeah. what works for them because it isn't a one size fits all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that my being unplugged um, would be so cruel for another person who needs to have. Yeah. So it's like, okay, reduce it to whatever works for you. Um, or expanded to where, you know, people who feel isolated in a way, you know, my mother-in-law, you know, who at age 95, you know, if she would allow us to introduce some other elements of technology, mm. I believe she might actually enjoy them, yeah. but she's, she's, you know, not wanting that at all. Um, so, so if you're open to potential solutions and you're open to exploring how much, how little is the right mix for me, I actually think it will become part of our, almost our self care discipline. Um, because, uh, because I think, you know, there are times where, um, they, yeah, you probably have friends on Facebook or Twitter that say, taking a break. Me. <laughs> right. right. To, and and un- that's important. Yeah, the unplugging thing is something I can definitely relate to as connected and as weird as it sounds. People who know me, because I am extremely connected almost constantly. Michelle gives me crap all the time for messaging in the middle of the night or responding to her messages in the middle of the night, that kind of thing. But when I'm, you know, after a big sort of marking block or something that's been really busy and stressful, like I, some of the best things I've done is just go camping and like just, you know, even just a weekend, just get unplugged. There's no phone signal. I can't do anything like that and it just almost is being outside and being completely different it's like almost instant recharge instant relaxation kind of thing so i can definitely relate to the the uh the unplugging thing uh i think one of the other issues and i kind of picked this up in myself and i obviously see it a lot in the younger generation is how communication happens so Mm -hmm. i uh, I picked it up in myself and it's probably one of the reasons why the podcast has been good for me because I was like, I don't feel like I'm maintaining the ability to have these in-person conversations very well anymore and because everything was over text, everything was short form, everything, you know, there's there's emojis and pictures and stuff that people use to communicate now as opposed to even words We've gone back to hieroglyphics apparently, but I think one of the things I was thinking about not long ago is like that kind of 
communication, you know, my generation might see that as, okay, this is weird, this is not proper communication, you're doing it wrong. But that's the that's how the 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 new the next generation communicates. Are we as OTs? I guess what the what the perspective would be? Are we trying to help people communicate like we communicate, or should we try to learn and adapt to what or how people are communicating so we understand you know what it means to them and how they engage in that that occupation of messaging and keeping in contact with friends and that kind of stuff. And again, I think some of it is, um, do, do people expose themselves to new ways of doing mm. it to figure out this, you know, or do they, you know, feel comfortable within a range and we help support that? Yeah. You know, I mean, I just think, um, you know, there, there's so many forms of communication there that are only open to people who have some level of privilege and resource. And, yeah. You know, and so, um, what are the universally, you know, um, accessible ways? to do that it's you know the the nature of a of a close-knit community that um lives um in in a communal situation Mm. because those outside access isn't there you know i mean so so i have a friend who uh, lives in in a small town in minnesota um, where he's been um um, a farmer yeah all of his life and now he's retired um, but those guys get together every morning for coffee um, and um, and he still joins them because he wants that social yeah, yeah. connectedness. He has a huge amount of knowledge for whoever might be newer to the group or has less experience that he can share. And then he can go home and enjoy other things. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have to go home, you know, uh, do the work that he used to yep. do. Um, so, um, so it's a way to, um, to both be socially connected as well as make use of the good stuff that he has, but also it's a transition from then, you know, his full-time 24 seven, um, being involved as a farmer. That's awesome. I'm yeah. wary of the time cause I don't want to take up yeah. all of your morning and we've almost spoken for two hours now, I think. Yeah, pretty close. It's time for you to get some rest. I might have to wait for my coffee to wear off first, but that's all right. That's fine. So, but yeah, yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to to come and have a chat. It's been really enlightening and and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been really fun. Great. Good. I hope that we can meet face-to-face in real um, real time. Me too. I'm getting so much pressure to come to an AOTA conference now. Yeah, well, Boston, yeah, Boston's two months away, right? They just sent out the program. I know I just received it in the mail yesterday. So, and yeah, it's been out there. I'm on it. Yeah, some... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, what do we have upcoming? We've got Boston. We've got San Antonio. We've got, um, oh, I'm forgetting. Um, I'll, I'll be at the European Union um, Congress in Prague in, in September. And then, um, of course, World Federation will be in Paris in 2022. I am, I am so. planning to head to that one. I haven't been to a, I haven't yeah. been to a WFAT conference yet. So Paris, Paris, oh, wow. is pretty, yeah. Paris sounds pretty enticing. Yeah. I, I yeah. Good. I, I haven't Good. been there since I was like little, little. I don't really remember it. So I'll be keen to, to come over and check it out and. And obviously attend the conference. Well, yeah. Well, and it seems like even the, their theme has to do with evolution and revolution. Um, I suspect that there's all sorts of ways you could connect to that theme. I no doubt. I'm sure I could come up with something. <laughs> <laughs>
That's great. Great. Well, thank you, Brock. It was wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. Here's to a good 2020. 